Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. N.T. Wright said something fascinating to me uh, when he said, I'll, I'll write the foreword for your book. He said to me something along the lines of, I think I might not have it completely correct, but it something along the lines of, David, you know, if you're going to release this book, you need to be willing to sit down and have tea with your enemies. Hmm. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's great so to be So you've here. got a really fascinating story of how you became a Christian. Let's start at the beginning, shall mm-hmm. we? Tell me about life growing up, uh, where you were, and if you had any kind of faith background. Yeah, so I grew up in an agnostic atheist home in Sydney, Australia. There was really a very piecemeal kind of new atheist view of Christianity in my household. It wasn't rational, um, but we kind of respected it uh, on a level, and my parents sent me to... Okay, Anglican boys school at the time and uh, I came out as gay when I was 14 and very much had a wrestle with what I experienced in the culture war between kind of in Sydney Australia where there's the largest LGBTQI plus community in the world uh, other than San Francisco you know and that also a very strong presence of the church and I found myself kind of wedged between those Mm. two things and thinking because I'm gay God couldn't kind of be involved with me, you know, that there was this kind of block. Mm. And so I thought, well, I'm not interested in Christianity. And I actually had an experience when I was uh, 14. I had a boyfriend at the time who's from an Orthodox Christian background. And he handed me in a park uh, a small amber cross with gold flecks in it. And he said, David, I want you to have this as a gift, a token of faith. I was both touched, but then also quite critical of him because I said, how could you give me this? cross as a symbol of our oppression you have you not read the bible and what it says about homosexuality and paul and women and it's all terrible and he just kind of responded by hushing me and then kissing me so it was whilst he was kissing me a man saw us riding on a motorbike in that suburb and pulled up into the park and took a large stone and proceeded to throw that against my back and i think that was the first time i ever experienced homophobia uh And I thought that cross is actually the source of it. And so I need to commit my life Mm. to coming against Christianity. And so uh, I kind of made a bit of an oath to become a gay activist, get involved in politics at that age. And was exploring French existentialism and the atheist worldview. Uh, But it was interesting that when I look back at that experience now, uh, I actually see that there was something prophetic almost about that experience that I actually had the cross of Jesus Christ in my hand Mm -hmm. I wore it till the age of 19 when I became a Christian which is really fascinating Mm -hmm. 
and that actually in that cross jesus christ took that stone for me mm. and he knew what it was like to be rejected and so actually the way to be freed from self-rejection as a gay man was through jesus christ it's really interesting that you held on to that cross as you say for those years given you came from quite a, a strong atheist background mm -hmm. so tell me more about your parents was was atheism kind of um talked about at home or was it just there in the background well my d they both worked for big corporates so they both had the idea of human rights acceptance of all people and you know they were right at the forefront of that and then at the age of about uh 17 my mom started talking about becoming a christian and that's when I said to her, you need to choose between the delusion in your head and your real son standing right in front of you. And I think today the church is actually being told it has to make that choice, gay community or God. And I just think that's a false choice. Mm. My mom said to me, by loving God, I love you better, David. I don't need to make that choice. But I decided that that's how it was. Yeah. And so that actually distanced me from my mother. Uh, and it wasn't until the age of about... Uh, 18 it was christmas lunch 2008 i was with my uh relatives who were christians and had influenced my mum's decision of faith and i was just furious with them so we were at the christmas lunch table it's a greek family so they talk about politics and religion <laughs> <laughs> freely and openly with Absolutely. passion <laughs> that's my kind of conversation right yeah, there exactly I've, I've never enjoyed the stereotype stereotypical british thing of don't talk about politics or religion in polite company i think but they're the two most interesting and important things these surely. are the sacred rituals of being a family uh, <laughs> maybe uh, there's a bit of greek blood in me somewhere i think there probably of. is you know um you know so then I heard my uncle make a comment about God and that just set it off. And I said, well, you Christians think you have the absolute truth. I've studied postmodern philosophy at university and I can tell you there is no absolute truth. I made this pre-woke stance against my, you know, relatives, I suppose. Because yeah. woke, if people don't know what that is, they can look it up. But woke, you know, didn't really exist. No, that so word's was, quite new, isn't I was it? in a yeah. kind of pre-woke right. wave, you know, the first wave <laughs> of woke. Early adopter. Uh, <laughs> and so then after the debate, I kind of stormed out of the room and he said, David, you said there's no absolute truth and that you can't communicate absolute truth with language. Um, but you just doubly contradicted yourself because you just, that is an absolute truth. To say there is no absolute language. truth is an absolute truth. So he'd read yeah. his apologetics textbook. And <laughs> <laughs> but I think what was marked to me about my uncle was, and I think this is the case for Orthodox Christians, is he deeply loved me and he wanted to share the truth with me he didn't want to back down from that. And I think often today in this conversation, people who have a different view to, you know, our culture are rejected because they actually want to love. <laughs> they want to share truth. Mm. Um, and I actually think uh, something touched me mm. about that, even if on the surface I felt yeah. so angry. So at that point, your mum had become a Christian. So I think you said you were 17 at the time. Yeah. So how did that happen? I was 18. You were 18. Oh, well, 17, yeah, she became a Christian. And then 18 was when I had the debate. Well, my mum actually, she said to me after all of this, when I'd actually become a Christian, that she had this very bizarre experience where she discerned a spirit of death over our family that's what she said right. she wasn't a christian <laughs> so that's a pretty interesting way of experiencing things when you're not a believer to just say i've ex i just feel mm. there's a spirit of death over our family and she just sensed that there wasn't life and she looked at my aunt's family and they they had their own dysfunctions their own humanity but yet there was something they had that we didn't there was life 
And so she said to my aunt, I want to come to church with you. I want that life in our yeah. family. And that's when she yeah, started to go to church. Yeah. Uh, so take us back to that conversation around the dinner table and the conversation about absolute truth. Yes. And what happened next? So then I theatrically stormed out of the room <laughs> in a fabulous way, uh, of course. And <laughs> my uncle and aunt left soon after that, you know, it was, it was the end of the of, end of the, the lunch and they were in the car. And my uncle is that kind of person with things like prophetic words or he's, he's quite conservative about that. He believes in it, but it's it doesn't happen that often. Okay. And so my aunt, on the other hand, was much more like my personality, you know, <laughs> open to those things every day. Like, so it's very interesting that he was the one who received this word and he had a very strong impression from the Holy Spirit that I would be saved in three months time and that the Holy Spirit would come upon me and Christ would save me right. in three months time. So that word spread to my mom. So he told you that or? Nope, I had no idea. Right. Yeah, like, so I found out about all of this after I, I, I received Christ as my savior and Lord. So. Three months later, as he says, it was March 2009, I end up in a pub in central Sydney and there's this young filmmaker there. Now what's interesting about these circ circumstances, I just got back from a political faction meeting, I was exhausted, I wanted to go to kind of a really fun, frivolous party, not like a kind of inner city. So I kind of chose, I just felt this sense I had to go to this party and I didn't know why. So you see the Holy Spirit working on me even before I knew Christ. And there's a lot of different stories that I've put in my book about how God was working in my life, even when I didn't mm. know Christ. Uh, so that's really fascinating. I end up there kind of not really of my own will. It's almost as if there was this providential grace being poured out in my life and my mom and aunt and everyone praying for me. And so I end up at this party and there's this girl there. now. She has elfine features. She looks a bit like Aubrey Hepburn. She wears <laughs> bright red lipstick and wonderful and fabulous brooches. And so I <laughs> go over to her and I've, I've heard that she's got her film into the largest short film competition in the world. She was from my alma mater in Sydney um, University. So I, I knew I could get a really good feature yeah. article from this story. Okay. So that I went with a purpose and she said, the real answer is the way I got this film into the largest short film competition in the world was God. And I was, I'm surrounded by Christians, you know? I was absolutely livid. I'm like, I just want to live my life. Like, why does this keep happening? Leave you know? me alone. <laughs> Leave me alone. Um, and then we got into a conversation and I kind of inferred, look, I'm gay, I'm not interested in your God. Like, I've read the Bible, I know what it says. Thank you Which so is much. really interesting because I think that is the attitude of a lot of LGBT people today is just immediately in encountering Christianity. It's as soon as they hear yeah. that term or that word, they think, no, that's not for me. Yeah, and I think that's that's really false. Um, I think the whole message of Christianity is, is this radical embrace, uh, but our culture seems very two-dimensional two -dimensional about what radical embrace and acceptance looks like. And I think that's the depth of Christianity is it doesn't just accept you and affirm everything about you. It brings you into a whole new way of being. Mm. You become a new creation mm. and suddenly your desires, your body, your life has a whole different meaning, but you're walking around in this world that has no idea 
what that's like. And then you're tasked with communicating that world. And that's what I find so hard as a celibate gay Christian now is often just who I am. It just dis- disrupts that two-dimensional picture mm. of sim- sim- the simple kind of secularist, romanticist yeah. view of reality where all that matters mm. is your white picket fence, sure. your gay or straight family with your kids, mm. and that's life. And then we look at Jesus Christ and we see an image of life, a picture of life that is so much more radical, so much more satisfying. Mm-hmm. Not that there aren't goods in those pictures that we have as secular society, but they pale in comparison to that Jesus that I met in that pub. So she continues to pray for me or offers prayer to me and says, you know, you can't understand all of this. I don't understand everything. The, way, the place I go is the love of God when I don't know what to do, when I'm anxious, when I can't work something out, I just go to God. And that was a sense I had from her. And I'd never seen a Christian like this. All my life I'd grown up with these biblical Christians. (laughs) And yet she was actually the most biblical Christian. Right. Because she lived in this real living relationship. She was giving, she was giving herself to, you know, an audience um, and a subjectivity of people that wasn't being represented in the mainstream. And there was something deeply cross-shaped about mm. her life. And it wasn't all put together. Mm. <laughs> That's what I loved about it. It wasn't, I know the answer to everything. It was, I know this person who's the answer to everything. Wow. So just as your mum had that impression of your aunt, of there's something different about you, you had something similar with this girl of thinking, yeah, there's something different about you, something attractive about you as a Christian. And there was renewal of the spirit. I mean, I didn't have that language back then. Sure. There was something of how the Holy Spirit had been working in the Western church to renew it Mm -hmm. that she had, and I was attracted to it. And so anyway, she says, you know, can I pray for you? Uh, I'm like, look, I'm a good agnostic. Good luck. You know, nothing's going to happen. I've done Buddhist meditation. I've been a Wiccan witch. I've been a Reformed Jew for a week. You know, this is the feeling (laughs) of just kind of spiritual exhaustion. I was a seeker that was exhausted. Really? So you you dabbled in all sorts of other stuff? Everything, yeah. I mean, I used to spend weekends in the largest New Age bookstore in the Southern Hemisphere in Sydney called Adyar. I, you know, was very invested in trying to find a spiritual path. Hmm. And I had this thirst and hunger and itch for more. And all my boyfriends would say, we can't satisfy you. You you want this kind of love that we actually can't provide for you. And I think that's such a fascinating thing that even before I was born, God had placed such a deep desire for him in me that actually nothing in the world would satisfy me. And he knew that. It sounds like a very uh, busy teenage period in terms of your beliefs, you know, (laughs) growing up in a sort of atheist family and then your mum becoming a Christian and then you dabbling in in New Age stuff and Buddhism and you said you were a reformed Jew for a week. There was a lot going on, I guess, to bring you up to this point. Well, I was just so hungry for more like there was something in me that just wasn't satisfied by the superficial responses of our culture in fact i was in a hipster club on oxford street the gay strip of sydney and i had a little journal and i wrote this question you know in a kind of horribly uh stereotyped way it was just very 
question, what is love? <laughs> and I just went, oh, this is such a cliche, David. Why are you asking this? So I wrote it out in a journal and passed it around to like these post-punk dancers, you know, these kind of hips, post-hipster, intelligentsia, intellectuals, politicians of my generation. And I just got terrible answers back. What is love? <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. You know, and it, that, that was that superficiality. And, you know, right. C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then I know that I was made for another world. I would say I was made for another person. Like, there is no other person in the world that can satisfy you. The only person mm. is God who will truly, deeply satisfy that deepest point. So this girl in the pub prays so, for you. She prays for me and she basically introduces me to that person. Right. And what's so amazing is at that point, I felt the most intense presence. It was like this weight, like hovering over my head. And you know, in Genesis, it talks about Ruach, the, the breath of God, the Holy Spirit hovering over the void. And I, it was this kind of deep metaphorical experience going on like that, as if all the chaotic waters of my life had all been brought to that point. Yeah. And there was this kind of peace that descended on me and it was like an eternal moment. And I just heard this voice. And I mean, I'd done all these other things spiritually. I knew what something outside of my consciousness should sound like or be like. And this was outside of my consciousness. Like it wasn't, and I'd never experienced anything like it before. And right. this voice said to me, do you want me three times? And it was the third point, which something so deep within me just said, yes. Hmm. And then I saw this veil over my heart and talks about in 2 Corinthians 3, that there's a veil that sits over that, their eyes that the God of this age has blinded them. You know, that was me. And that's, and then this one pinprick of light, as I said, yes, just comes straight into the innermost part of my being. And I just felt this breath, like breathing through me. And I remember her telling me, you've been born again. <laughs> And I associated that with a very different kind of experience <laughs> or group of people. <laughs> so I wasn't really that happy to hear that term. But what she was saying to me is that I had been born from above. And Jesus talks about this in the Gospels. And, uh, and that this new life had suddenly come into my world. It was amazing. And then I felt this tug of war over my life. Like... That's why I called my book A War of Loves, because there's a sense of like two different ways of living, two different loves, which one would define my life. And that was the feeling of what I was entering into, two kingdoms at war. And um, I remember this voice saying, will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and savior? Hmm. And a part of me was just so cynically depressed about that or disappointed because that's oh, the Christian God, you know, why <laughs> can't it be some other? It's pretty you know? clear, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. that, that kind of language, you can't mistake that kind of God for anyone else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was very direct. <laughs> and I, I just felt this intense tug for about five minutes as she was praying for me. And I finally just had this very soft kind of yes came out for me and kind of shock at myself. Like, why did you just say that? <laughs> um, but it was, it wasn't very convinced it was kind of, okay, yes. Yeah. And that's how I entered the kingdom of God. It was yeah. that. So she's, I kind of come out of this prayer and the love of God has just been poured out on me like a deluge. And she, you know, I need to kind of be patted down with the flannel because my whole body is just full of heat and just this cleansing power of God, like all through me. It was amazing. 
And this was the love that I'd been searching for. This was the, what is love? That's, that's the question. And God met me. And then I went home that night and my mum was waking up and she'd heard about this word from God. So she said to me, you know, as I walk in sheepishly realizing I'm probably gonna have to eat my words. <laughs> she says to me, David, are you okay? What's happened? I said, uh, I think I've just, I just, um, just uh, I think I've <laughs> become <laughs> um, a, cr cr a, cr a Christian. <laughs> And my mum's reaction as an opera singer was, Hallelujah! <laughs> I knew he was the God of the impossible. Because David, you were impossible to save. And I made a covenant with him that if he saved you, then I'd give him my whole life because I knew that, you know, you were impossible to save. Wow. And so I saw this incredible kind of reconciliation between me and my mum. And I had a lot of really intense encounters with the Holy Spirit that my mum then had to kind of lead me through in the scriptures. And all these things started happening to me that were all written in the Bible. So this book that I hated, that I thought spelt my condemnation, suddenly everything I was experiencing in God was in it. <laughs> and I ended up going to two churches, one that was kind of more mainline social justice, embrace gay marriage. I thought, great, I can have my partner and I can have the Holy Spirit and I can have Jesus. And then as I started living my Christian life, I realized that's not gonna work. And there's this kind of wagering point. Mm. And it all came down to what I call the fear of the Lord in the scriptures, you know, in Proverbs, and then all the way through the Bible, you know, it talks about Jesus having the spirit of the fear of the Lord upon him. It was like, I have to let God be God. I let, have to let him be different to me. Even if I have pre preferences and desires, mm. which are different to him, I have to let him be God and I have to submit to his Lordship over my life mm. and give him whatever he wants, my money, you know, my life, my, the direction of my life, you know, everything, not just my sexuality, but it came to a point in Strasbourg, France, where actually it was time to give him my precious, <laughs> <laughs> which I think for our culture, our precious is really romantic love. I mean, right. the reason people go for money, the reason people go for these other idols is because they want to serve mm. having a romantic partner. Sure, I mean, there are there are Christians that I know you spent a lot of time with, and I've met before mm -hmm. as well, who would say, "Well, I'm I'm gay, I'm Christian. I think God has no problem with me marrying someone of of the same sex." So it's really interesting in your story that when you first became a Christian, of course, I think as you put it, well, yeah. why why wouldn't I go into that kind of a church? Well, and and this is great, I can have it all. So so what was it that? that convinced you that that wasn't possible? Because I can see how that would be a very logical conclusion to come to, because there are churches who believe that, there are Christians who live that way. So I completely understand how mm. you would naturally kind of fall into that world. So it must be something quite dramatic for you to to give up, I suppose, um, an element of your life in terms of dating people the same sex. It must have been quite a dramatic turn away from that. I think that it takes a person a long time sometimes to understand the gift they've received. And for me, it was a journey of, I've just received Jesus. I've received this incredible gift. I can't even process what I've been given. This is huge. Like, I've just been made right with God through no effort of my own. This is incredible. I've just been given a relationship with the one who can truly satisfy my heart. I didn't want to spend my Christian life being bogged down with arguments about sexuality. Mm -hmm. I wanted to enjoy this incredible gift I'd been given. 
And I thought, you know, I've done cultural studies at uni. I've done postmodern, you know, um, philosophy. And I'd read James K. Smith, Thinking in Tongues. And I kind of like had these intellectual moments of trying to kind of find a way through where I could still believe um, as a postmodern in kind of, you know, you never get to this full truth. It's kind of still, you're in this imperfect way of understanding God. But it came the point where I actually started not just to be a believer anymore, but to become a disciple. Where I realized just salvation was insufficient and actually lordship was the desk, you know, the kind of end point, the goal of the grace I'd received. And that if I didn't go to being a disciple, I was actually spurning the grace I'd received. I was actually living a cheap grace Christianity. And Bonhoeffer, I think, was a really important part of that studying the history of modern Christianity and some of the ways it's been twisted and turned. And I realized actually, if I'm not willing to give my sexuality to God, then I'm, I'm really not living as a disciple. And then the other thing that happened was I just got to know the scriptures better. And I got to see that right from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the covenant of marriage between male and female had an incredibly profound theological significance. This was not some light, well, why would you not let LGBTQI people get married? This was not some you know, oppressive regime from, you know, from Western structures of power. This was the creator God who was my redeemer and his identity. And suddenly it wasn't about my identity, ultimately, although that was still important to the Lord. It was about his identity being vindicated and that he made us male and female for the purpose of marriage, not to make that the end point. <laughs> and this was the second theological discovery I had that the end point of all of this, the reason he made us male and female was not to oppress LGBTQI people. It was because he wanted to express what the future state of Christ in the church, God and the earth and all creation becoming one in this incredible cosmic event in the, that we're all going to experience in the future. <laughs> he created male and female to reflect that. Mm. And so for me to have a gay marriage was to go against right. that who he, God is. <laughs> uh, and it, and not to say that God didn't also, I had some really fascinating experiences in Strasbourg. It was a really interesting way. He brought me there. And one of them was I, at about three months into my trip, doing an exchange year to finish off my degree in France, I was at Librairie Kleber, which is the central uh, kind of bookshop. Um, and I loved bookshops, so I always spend time there. And um, there was this little poster. It said, The Last Gay Holocaust Survivor. His book, The, the Triangle Rose, The Pink Triangle. He's going to come and speak. And I thought, I have to go to that. And so I went and I remember encountering his story and just weeping and weeping and weeping. And the Holy Spirit saying to me, never forget, David, that you are gay, that this is unjust and I want you to fight this kind of hatred. Mm. And I stand with gay people. Mm. I do not reject you. I have yeah. included you. Yeah. And I think that was important because the evangelical Christian world had kept saying to me, well, this is not your identity. Just forget about it. Go live your Christian life. And that's actually not where God mm. led me. God led me in a slightly different path yes. to what people well, might expect. I think what's so fascinating about your story is I think it, it challenges both groups of people almost equally in the sense that I know there are, you've spoken before about some in the LGBT community 
feeling unable to embrace you because you've chosen to be um, celibate. And yet, of course, in the evangelical world, there are some who would say, well, David, you can't call yourself a gay Christian. Your identity's in Christ. Mm-hmm. And so even that term is wrong. And so let's talk about that second category for a moment. Let's mm-hmm. give you an opportunity to speak kind of to the evangelical side of the equation a little bit here. Mm-hmm. So what would be your response to someone who says, well, David, I think it's wonderful that you've chosen to follow the Bible and be celibate and to um, recognize God's plan and design for humanity and for sex. But, you know, what about this label of, of gay? Surely that word gay means lots of things that are wrong from a Christian ethic and so you shouldn't identify as gay. What would be your response to that? I think I want to treat this very delicately because I recognize that people before me and the conversation before me, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, like there was this kind of really difficult, a very polarized conversation happening there about the term gay. But I think for my generation, the term gay has come to really mean your sexual orientation and that I suppose I would have a minimalist approach to what it means to be gay. That at the essence of being gay is that you actually have a sexual orientation towards the same sex. What you choose to do with that orientation is your choice. Mm. Having that orientation is not your choice. Mm. You inherit everything through the, the, the lens of creation, full redemption. Those three things explain who you are right now. And you never, you know, chose to be that. Mm. That's something that the way that everything has turned out in the cosmic story of the gospel is that you have received a body that has this particular orientation. What I also find really interesting is I've also discovered that heterosexuality is not the goal of being Mm -hmm. a Christian. And that actually heterosexual desire is incredibly fallen too, although a created gift. So desire itself to be a desirous creature is a gift. It's a beautiful thing ultimately, even if it has also been affected by the fall or sin or death entering the creation. And also evolution, you know, our bodies have an evolutionary blueprint that God had to come and redeem as well through Christ. And so if you believe in evolution, you know, that's also another way of understanding it that I think is fascinating. Mm. And evolution can't explain why there is same-sex desire. Actually, only Christianity can. And it's interesting because Tom Holland, who recently wrote the book Dominion, says the reason we have homosexuality and heterosexuality in this rights movement is because of Christianity. Because Christianity has this story that explains this complex reality of human desire. And so for me, it's about bringing down the equal playing field. We're all fallen. We all Mm -hmm. need salvation. We all need redemption into a different path that looks like Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I think if you go down the hyper-conservative or the hyper-progressive, you're missing it. Mm -hmm. You know, these are not the ways to go. Mm -hmm. And I actually think they've made society a terrible place for a gay person that truly wants to be free, free to choose Jesus Christ, free to live a Christian life in accordance to the scriptures. We have to fight for that right. We have to stop these polar opposites Mm. from taking the ground. Mm. And I realize there are gonna be people who have similar experiences to me who are genuinely gonna think, I can go have a gay marriage. I think they're wrong, (laughs) I think they're mistaken, but there's a different heart there to say those polar opposites that that are missing the fullness of the picture. And so I'm trying to come into this conversation, having been someone who wasn't a Christian, having been someone who isn't evangelical in the true sense of the word, which means God can show up anywhere, any place and do radical things and save people. (laughs) That's what evangelical should be. That's the evangelical that I am. And that's the evangelical 
radicalism that my story has mm. put within me. And I think of the British tradition particularly and the great awakenings and the way God just poured out his spirit, even with all the church politics, even with all the church hypocrisy, God moved and saved. You know, in this country, the Wesleys, you know, they stopped a drunkard generation from going through a revolution that would mean that the gospel would be pushed back. And there's this incredible outpouring of salvation. And that's what I want to see in a more, even a way that has a thicker theology of what it means to be a human mm -hmm. person and the, the struggle of human desire. Yeah. And that has been the struggle of Christians since the beginning. All the church fathers, they write at infinitum about desire. <laughs> and what's weird about our modern moment is we have such a superficial view of human desire. So mm -hmm. that's my passion. That's yeah. the kind of deeper way that I yeah. want and I'm fighting for this conversation. Sure. Premier Christianity magazine. Are you fed up with fake news or bored of bad stories? We think it's time for something different. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. Every month, our team publishes stories of lives transformed, testimonies, miracles, healings, and loads more good news. We're here to encourage you, excite you, and keep you up to date with all that God is doing through his church. That's why we're proud to bring you a magazine that's different. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Well, I mean, it's very clear from everything you said already. You've got a really keen interest in theology. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more about that because I know, um, bring us up to date with some of your journeys. I know that's included moving here, obviously, to the UK and studying the uh, theology at a very high level. So tell me more about how that sort of come about and why you're now in the UK rather than Australia. Well, uh, that is a fascinating story. Uh, there's a long prophetic, and I think this is something that's characterized my story, is just continually God breaking in with prophetic words and words of knowledge and things that have just guided me. And when I was at the age of 15, I was had Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, in my hand, and I had my mom's new atheist colleague who'd taken me to Oxford today for a day after my French exchange. And um, he said, David, here's this book. This is the truth. You can put down your searching now. This is the answer. So he evangelized me as an atheist, basically. And I read that book and it only took two or three weeks before I just, it didn't work <laughs> with reality. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I remember looking up at Christchurch, you know, in Oxford and saying, I will never study here. I'm not good enough. And there was this young gay man doubting himself, doubting the gifts he'd been given dealing and wrestling and 10 years later I end up in the exact same spot with bags full blackwells books full bags full of christian apologetics and christian <laughs> theology and i think for me what it represents is a worship of the mind and i think having come from a pentecostal background and i still you know subscribe largely to many of the things in pentecostalism I needed worship of the mind too. Mm. And it's very interesting because in the Old Testament, it doesn't actually involve mind. That comes through more strongly in New Testament through Jesus. Yeah. He says, worship the Lord God with all your mind. Yes. He adds that, which yeah. is fascinating. And I think Christianity requires the mind. It requires both a heart, heart and head. Yeah. head and the integration of wholeness of a person. And I think that's what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate mm. about seeing people receive wholeness. Because I think these questions of sexuality and desire, what they do is they can often steal who God has made us to be as a whole person. Um, so yeah, that that 
that was just amazing to see how God took me 10 years later to the same place with a radically different experience um, and had given me a new identity as a Christian, as a son of God. And then out of that has flowed just this intense hunger and inquiry into theology. Mm. And it's this is also interesting because there's been times in my career where I felt like I'm actually just gonna lay theology down. I think I'm just gonna move on. And every time the door just swings wide in my face and it's like, keep going. And so to be able to do my doctorate at the University of Oxford on same-sex desire and contemporary Anglican theology and how celibacy, a celibacy like mine is actually quite a new thing mm. in the Christian world in some ways and how it challenges some of the orthodoxies of mm. queer theory and um, traditional Christian theology and how it actually might open up a new space mm. <laughs> for the conversation to go forward in theology. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. Yes, work. those those who hold to uh, very similar Mm -hmm. um, positions that, that you do on sexuality who are Christians, some of them are worried that if you look at the general almost trajectory of the Church of England and even academia, mm -hmm. they feel, and, and actually society as well, they feel mm -hmm. like the battle, the theological battle is kind of being lost. Um, I've even heard people talk about, well, it, it sounds almost conspiratorial that the Church of England is sort of putting bishops into positions who are more liberal on sexuality. And so in a generation's time, the landscape will look very different and those who hold to the kind of theology you do will be um, almost almost increasingly excluded from the conversation or almost your point of view would be would be shut down even more and more because you look at the way the church is going look at the way the culture is going i mean that's a very pessimistic view but do you think there's much founding to that kind of um opinion of the current landscape and where things might be going i think there's a difference between naivety and hope uh and i don't think naivety is a christian virtue however God has looked at this world and the state of humanity and continued to believe in it. In fact, so much so he became a human being. And I believe in that more centrally than anything else. And I know that it's not through fear that we can get to a point where the gospel is truly preached. It's only through faith, hope and love. And so, of course, I look at the situation and I find it deeply concerning I also really feel for the bishops. Um, our culture is horrifically Christophobic towards people. I mean, it's like, if you are Christophobic, I mean, your fear of Christians and them having a different view, then you actually increase homophobia. You're actually contributing to it because you're creating this polarized society. Instead of a society where we can coexist, love one another, indifference, you're actually compromising that ideal. And I deeply believe in that ideal. I mean, it's something we've actually received from God through the gospel in different forms, shapes and sizes mm -hmm. in, in, in societies across the world. Mm -hmm. There's now this capacity to disagree, but mm -hmm. to hold together. You've and and I, I really, I think that's a precious thing. We have to wait for Jesus to come back as Christians. And that's when, you know, there's going to be vindication for those who lived righteously and in holiness. But we're not going to get that vindication fully now. Um, but I do think when the church changes the doctrine of marriage, it rejects God. Right. This is part of his identity. And that's why I'm trying to say, I'm not mm. trying to say that people have a different view or journeying or who wrestling or who, you know, haven't concluded there. Fine. But I'm talking about the relationship of Jesus and the bride. I'm talking about 
he says you know in revelation to the churches i have you know i have one thing against you that you mm. you tolerate sexual so, immorality and so, i think in the new testament it it's quite clear yeah. that that's in, that involves so, so when it comes to a question of the church of england in the future changing the definition um and moving away from marriage but being between one man and one woman are you saying if the church of england moves away from that definition that this is that it would it would no longer be an issue we can agree to disagree over because it would strike at the heart of the gospel i think the problem is unlike the question of women in leadership the question of same-sex desire actually undermines like if you go down that route you actually undermine scripture so much that you cease to be anglican in fact you fold your anglicanism into itself because hooker richard hooker the reformer that basically gilded together what anglicanism was this wonderful diverse space where people with different opinions could come together and yet scripture was held as the ultimate authority that would define the polity culture reality of the church so that disciples could be made richard hooker says scripture reason tradition now i think the modern contribution to that in anglicanism is also the importance of experience within reason mm -hmm. and a, a development of what reason means mm -hmm. however that cannot remove scripture from its higher place of authority and so i think the only way to be truly anglican is to take on a position that is prophetically challenging idolatry within society in heterosexual world and all of that but holding to what the scriptures say and that's why the bishops made the statement they did not because they want to be homophobic because they want to clarify that that's the case mm -hmm. that's anglican uh so i think for the anglican church to retain its identity it's it has to do that but whether it mm. will be accepted will come be persecuted that's part of being a Christian, we will be persecuted. But I think it's important that people on the other side, people listening to this who are like, what is he talking about? We love you. We want to be the church. We want you to be included, mm. but we can't betray who God is in our identity. So please don't ask us to make that false choice that my mother, that I put to my mother. Let us be followers of Jesus Christ. Is there um, a bit of a, a job to be done, some work to be done in, in, in trying to bridge the divide just when it comes to understanding and with the LGBT community say, say actually you know, this isn't us having a dig at you, this is something that is just genuinely being in our tradition and our scriptures for, for a long time. This was never written to exclude you as such. I think that the fact that we're in this situation comes from a place within the church where gay people haven't been listened to in the past and the church hasn't been able to re form its traditions in a way that has allowed the actual subjective experience of being gay to f to thicken out how that liturgy is lived out and so that when that gay person goes into the church they actually go oh yeah i know johnny down the road he believes in marriage between a man and a woman, he's Anglican, he's gay, but he lives in that kind of different way. Okay, cool. Well, that's not like a rejection of all gay people. right? But because there hasn't been that witness- That hasn't been modeled. And gay people have been held at an arm's length because of fear in the church. There isn't that thickness mm -hmm. of witness. There isn't that 
contextual factor. Mm. And that's why I felt like I have to come out with my story, not because I want to write a book at the age of 29, <laughs> wait a bit longer, but because I felt there aren't, there isn't that, sure. that storytelling, there isn't that way of interpreting doctrine where the church is confident enough to actually mm. let gay people talk mm. and gay people represent its perspective. And so this is all incredibly new. This is all incredibly like difficult to, to, to do. And I think the reductionistic views of the media have actually largely contributed to that problem mm. where the media doesn't really understand what it means to be a Christian on that, in that kind of depth. And it's kind of rejecting that. And I find that really difficult. I find that actually quite oppressive mm. uh, and I don't really know how to deal with it. Um, I would say that what the church also needs to do is learn not to be so dualistic that there can still be good things in and around, you know, gay relationships. There's still self-sacrifice. There's still, some, and in my book, you know, I talk about that. God is still intimately involved in the gay world. God isn't just left, you know. God has chosen to be committed to that community through Jesus Christ, all humanity, for he, he died for all of us. Mm. You know, scripture is very clear about that. And I so I think that is a really important other component that hasn't also been yes. articulated well. I, th I think there's definitely a tendency in the Christian world to, to be dualistic and to completely write off, could be anything, as evil as we can't tell. I mean, mm -hmm. speaking as someone who recently put Dracula on the front cover of Premier <laughs> Christianity magazine and had to read some of the feedback, which I was anticipating and which is valid, yeah. but... But, you know, it's a completely different example, obviously, but this is a world in which a lot of Christians wouldn't touch. And the article was just pointing out, hey, there might be some things in this TV series that theologically are quite good. But I think there was a fear amongst some of just, no, we can't associate anything good with mm -hmm. that particular piece of medium. And I, I suppose you're saying something similar about the, the gay community. There are some Christians who just can't associate anything good with that community at all and have completely written it off. Um, I want to dwell on that a little bit longer because you mentioned that word homophobia a couple of times. And so my question is, have you seen examples of what you would describe as homophobia in the church? And by that, I don't mean, of course, people who hold a traditional perspective on marriage um, or people who have occasionally said some, uh, quoted some bits of the Bible that are culturally difficult to hold these days. I mean, homophobia in terms of where people have gone way too far in their criticisms and have been unchristlike in the way they've talked about this particular subject. I think it's really important that the term homophobia is only used when it can be established as such. I think when it's used in a shrill, trivial way, it undermines the experience of people who actually go through it. I think what I find really also fascinating about people who take a different stance to me is they've often experienced very profound forms of homophobia from the Christian world they grew up in. And that has driven them down a line that I haven't gone down because I didn't have that experience. And that's something of deep empathy that I feel with people of a different persuasion, ultimately ethically on this question. So for me, homophobia is something like that stone being thrown at my back. Mm. It, it, it's it's a, an act of whether epistemic, physical whatever violence towards someone just because they're gay or same-sex attracted and it is a deep sin and i think jesus comes on the scene in the gospels in a similar way to how women were being treated and says you know about the adulterous woman he without the without sin cast the first stone so homophobia is that act of 
throwing the stone, whether it's a literal like stone that I experienced or it's a more subtle hatred of gay people. And what I find interesting is when I've go- gone and spoken, I my testimony has a lot of power to actually deliver people who are homophobic in the church out of that fear. And I think we have to remember a lot of people's sin, fear, you know, these kinds of acts come from a lack of knowing themselves loved and often come from deep pain and problems and things that we might not see. So if all we see in a person is the homophobe, we've missed the point as Christians. The gospel involves a reconciliation between both parties. And that requires a cost of going and loving that person that hates you. And then them being able to release that hatred and actually be forgiven. Mm. And I think we have to be experts at that. We don't have the luxury of hating our enemies. Mm. As Christians, we must love those who persecute us. We must love our enemies. Mm. And so I have had deep experiences of that. And I've also had temptation to hate people who are my enemies. Mm. You know, just the way that I get trivialized by people who have a different perspective, the way I'm seen as a threat, the horrible things they've said to me, I've had to forgive them over and over and over again Mm. at great personal cost to myself. I've noticed you've at times sort of withdrawn from social media for mm-hmm. for a period of time. Is is that because some of the messages that you were getting, you felt you had to walk away for your own well-being? I think that I'm an extrovert, so I love to process things with other people's presence. Uh, I find it hard to just go alone and be with myself, and that's something I think that actually Jesus has challenged me on. He said, "David, I need you to come away with me, and need you to be alone with me." So I've, it's, it's partially come out of, yeah, exhaustion from that kind of conversation that's just negative and mm. difficult and actually often a bit of a, you know, waste of time and effort. But also for me in my growing relationship with the Lord of like needing to put him first above my desire to kind of mm. process. And I think a lot of people in our social media age struggle with the same Thing. So I think I'm very interested in talking about that, actually. Like, how do we manage, you know, the way that we communicate today with being a Christian disciple? Yeah, uh, it's a huge so, topic. Yeah. yeah. But I think definitely, uh, I think it you need to step back from those platforms mm-hmm. and learn. N.T. Wright said something fascinating to me uh, when he said, I'll, I'll write the foreword for your book. He said to me something along the lines of, I think I might not have it completely correct, but it something along the lines of, David, you know, if you're going to release this book, you need to be willing to sit down and have tea with your enemies. Hmm. And I just love that line, you know, of sometimes being on social media isn't sitting down and having tea with no, your enemies. It's very different, isn't it? Yeah, it's such an English way of putting it. But... <laughs> I think there's that, something there's a great deal of truth there though about yeah. sitting down having tea implies face to face quote unquote real life conversation not to say the online world isn't real life but I think most people understand there is a distinction right between what we're doing right now I can see you you're in front of me <laughs> as opposed to if we're on Facebook Messenger it is, it is different isn't it I think if the institutions were serving the people well we wouldn't need these online social media platforms as much if there was consultation in the church with side B gay celibate 
mixed orientation, marriage, Christians, uh, I wouldn't need to be so vocal. I mean, the church would be doing its job. Mm. It's not. That's actually a point I really wanted to make sure we covered. And that is the way you have challenged the church and Christians to think about our attitudes towards singleness and marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us, tell us some more about that. Cause I, I know many, not just yourself, but I know you've, you've spoken about this idea of sometimes the church, I think inadvertently can create a kind of hierarchy. I mean, mm-hmm. I've noticed this, you know, when, yeah. uh, when I was, when I was single, it was, do you have a girlfriend? You have a girlfriend. Are you engaged yet? When you're engaged, it's when you're getting married. When you, when you're married, it's when you're having kids. And it's almost like people assume this trajectory. In fact, someone pointed out the other day that be very careful when we tell testimonies about how people become Christians I thought this was an excellent point he said that he'd noticed when we tell testimonies we say so and so was living a terrible life was far from mm-hmm. God's really messed up and then he became a Christian and now he's happily married and you think hang on a minute marriage is not the end goal here so tell us some more because I know this is a subject you're very passionate about oh, absolutely I mean if I had a dime for every time I heard things like that I've dime for every time I've been in a church where the pastor said oh you're single get up you know Um, now go and get married, hurry up, you know, even just implicitly everywhere in Christian communities, people fall, even though they'll say formally like, oh yeah, of course, singleness, they'll be like, no, not really. Yeah. And people's hearts haven't been circumcised, they haven't been set apart by the teaching and depth of scripture and what it actually, the incredible calling of being single and celibate. I would love to see a church that is so on fire for Christ that they would actually say, I don't think I really want to get married unless God calls me. I would love to see that because I'm going to tell you that the marriages will be so much stronger. The ministries will be so much better. You know, if you go into marriage thinking it's going to solve your issues, oh my gosh, you have something coming for you. It's only going to reveal, you know, your need for character growth. Marriage is a form of martyrdom. Mm for another person it's incredibly demanding and actually if you're not ready for that don't do it Mm. the other thing about this i think is when we talk about church being a family um and yet how easy it is to not quite live that out to the extent to which i know you would argue is is really there in the Mm -hmm. new testament so for example i'm i'm married but how often do i think in my church about the single people and 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 is there a tendency for me to invite other couples over or am I thinking about the single people in our church? Yeah. What, what are the other sorts of practical things like that that you've noticed See, or that you would want to press on I think if people can catch what God's trying to say, if people can catch that there's this future state where there will be no marriage and that we will all have this ecstatic love between each other without that being the, the case, they're going to want to practice heaven on earth. And then this will all work out marriage is still a created good god loves it blesses it it points to the future it's here now and it's something beautiful that reflects christ and the church it's a mystery it's uh, but if that other side of the coin is not understood that it points to something Mm -hmm. and that god's calling us to put that future reality into practice now to witness to our culture because he's created every human being for that kind of ecstatic love friendship we don't really have categories for it it is so radical and so amazing that if people can catch that then i think the practices will uh change Mm -hmm. i think whereas i mean i can give advice on like you know we one example would be the community i live in at the moment uh, is with a married couple who have 
enough wealth to buy a house in Oxford, two young kids, and they've decided because we're Christians, we want to have five single or not single PhD students living with us. And so they formed something of life where it's a bit of a sacrifice for them because they're giving up their domestic space to but it's also incredible blessing and vice versa. And so I think if we can just see more of this kind of expression of faith in the future of what mm. we're going to become as human beings in Christ, yeah. then I think the church, mm. this won't be an issue. Yeah, we're fast running out of time, but I yes. did want to touch on um, really the nitty gritty of, of some of the, the theology here. Um, and, and that is the argument that you would have heard before, which is, well, this issue of, of gay marriage in the church, it's really just the same as slavery. So with slavery, it was there in the Old mm-hmm. Testament, it was there in the New Testament. I know we've got our apologetic arguments about how, you know, slavery was never God's intention and how mm-hmm. the early church, you know, there's, there's hints as there in Philemon and other places of this, this being uh, something that was kind of on the way out or whatever. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, big picture, there's been a change of going from, yeah, yeah, we're completely for this to now being completely against this. And in the same way, people say, well, that's what's going to happen with, with gay marriage. Yes, as a Christian right now, you're saying this is not God's best, but give it a few years, give it another generation or two, and we'll look back uh, in horror. In the same way we look back on horror at Christians who own enslaved, we'll look back on at horror of Christians who tried to stop gay marriage from happening. That's quite a common argument. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to ask you for a brief response, but what is your response to that argument? So my brief response is, read the bible actually uh and read it fairly and read it all the way through and know that the bible is about a human story a broken story of god's relationship with humanity and also with humanity's relationship to itself but what about the argument that people read the bible on slavery well you see that the greatest motivation for the abolishing of slavery first comes through a Christian witness. And yes, also some people who weren't Christians as well. And that's important to recognize as a historical fact. But then also you see the relativization of power in the early church, where suddenly the slave is lifted above the master because the slave represents Christ, who was our servant. And so actually the slave is esteemed more highly than the master. And the glory the slave is given is higher than the master. So there's this kind of cross-shaped power relationship that I think is the most compelling and eventually led to the abolishing of slavery. Mm. Because if you're going to put the slave above the master, then you're going (laughs) to abolish slavery. And you say there's no parallel there in in the current debate around gay marriage then? No, because I think there isn't an understanding of the way God has called gay people to flourish in the ways that like I've seen. And therefore what God is not asking someone is self-repression, self-hatred, internalized homophobia, any of those Mm -hmm. things, complete self-acceptance, complete understanding. In Isaiah 53, the eunuch, who is the one who doesn't fit into the easy binary of male and female, God says 600 years before Jesus comes to Mm -hmm. them, those that obey my commands live according to my Sabbaths, I will give a name that is greater than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an eternal name that shall not be cut off. Uh, That's amazing, you know. <laughs> what would you What would you say to the gay person who looks in at this conversation and says, but, you know, you're claiming Christianity is true, and yet the church is divided over this question. Mm. Um, 
and yes david you're advocating celibacy but there are other people who say they're evangelical christians who say they mm. read the bible who say they're interpreting the bible like a good evangelical and they're coming to the conclusion that there's nothing wrong with uh, being in a same-sex relationship or marriage and the atheist the, the the gay atheist person looking on and saying the church is divided you say you claim truth and yet i look at the church and you can't even agree amongst yourselves on an issue that's very important to me cuts to the core of my identity how can i believe any of this is true if you can't get it right on what looks like quite an important moral issue for christianity paul says in 1 corinthians 13 if you do not have love you can have all the prophetic wisdom you can understand the scripture's ethic on marriage you can have everything revealed to you but if you don't have love you have nothing and i think that the danger that i see on this question is that we don't love each other we don't get to the t and have it and we don't let ourselves be exposed to the other and let that love actually inform the way we live out truth and so for me it's when I see a person that disagrees with me, I see an opportunity to love someone and to grow in the truth, even if I disagree. And I think if you can have that posture, eventually the church can then come to an mm. orthodox kind of place. But I think if we keep this dynamic going where we disagree in the ways we do, it, it I just don't see it ever mm. producing good fruit. That said, there's a place to challenge. There's a place when you've earned the right through loving another person to say this is wrong you have to live a different way and that happened in my life through a celibate missionary woman living in Strasbourg France who had paid the price of the gospel and who showed me she'd made that sacrifice well for me to give up my sexuality and I think it's so much more about that mm. than it is about these abstract I feel as a gay person that God has shown me this the second thing is scripture is the ultimate authority you might have feelings that god has said something to you if it doesn't line up with scripture tradition and reason it's not god and you say that as someone who's already explained you're very open to the prophetic and the supernatural but it's easy and the for a straight person to say that right i'm saying it as a gay person because i know the cost right but i know that christ is worth that cost and actually when you get into it it's not a cost it's actually freedom and that's the deep paradox at the heart of christianity mm. that to go the way of the cross to go the harder mm. self-giving self-dying mm. self-denial way is actually the way to resurrection mm. and that's i want gay people to have true human flourishing that's what i want you know and i see that only really truly happening for all people through the cross mm. through the resurrection so that's my kind of response. I could say so much more. There it's is, all in the book. It's all in the book. <laughs> it's all happening. We're all having a conversation. We're all going to learn to love each other. You know, thank you so much for having me uh, and letting me just yeah, give you my pontification. Well, <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. David Bennett, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of our conversation today. I do hope you enjoyed that. Before we go, I wanted to remind you that this show is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, you can request one absolutely free of charge at premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Well, from me and the rest of the team here at Premier, we're going to say goodbye for now, but we will be bringing you these conversations each and every week throughout the coronavirus pandemic. We are still broadcasting these profile interviews, so we look forward to seeing you next time.